Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 428, and today we're sharing a story from the recent archery elk season. Graydon is a listener of the show, and he was able to go on his very first elk hunt this year, and he was able to take the entire month of September off to hunt elk in Colorado. And with weeks of elk hunting opportunity, you would think that he would hear some bugles, have some crazy encounters be able to cover some country and get into elk. And Graydon hunted hard. You'll hear about it. He covered country in multiple units, but he did not experience what you would expect. He did kill an elk, which I'm excited for you to hear about, but I'm also a bit dumbfounded by some of his experiences and the big picture of this story. I don't know what to make of it. (laughs) I'd be curious to think more on this and hear your take and hear if other listeners have had similar experiences. But before we dive into that story, I just want to remind you guys, you can always contact us directly, share any questions, suggestions, or maybe even guest suggestions that you have for this show. Just send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you just share it with a friend or leave a rating or review in your podcast app. Hit pause and do that right now if you can. Come on back, let's dive into this wild story with Graydon. Graydon, welcome to the podcast. I'm uh, excited to chat with you today and hear your story and learn from you and all that stuff. I got to ask first, one thing that caught me in your email is it sounded like you essentially had, unless I read it wrong, essentially had almost the whole month of September to be out of state hunting elk. Is that true? And if so, how? (laughs) That is absolutely correct. And I'm a contractor where I work. So I basically had to take a month off or they were going to tax on my per diem money. So I think I might have to stick around this place. So I get all these Septembers to hunt. Yeah. How cool, man. Uh, Dude, that's huge, especially, you know, you being out of state. And that's one thing it can be tough if you are traveling for a hunt is obviously typically you're picking dates in advance and sometimes weather and other factors don't cooperate. So if you're able to have a whole bunch of time to work with, then that obviously increases not only your odds because you have more time in the field, but just gives you chances to use the best of certain good days and maybe take it easy on some bad days and things like that yeah it really worked out perfectly yeah definitely the move in the future yeah how i know this was your first successful archery elk hunt right yes was this this was your first elk hunt period though is that correct that's right okay so you, you took off like I mean, that's an adventurous way to get after it. Not only am I going to go my first elk hunt, I'm only going to do it driving across the country, and I'm only going to do it solo, but then I have a month to do it. Like, that's wild. Yeah, it worked out perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) Man, there's so much to talk about. You were successful, but it took a while. Yeah, I think it was around three weeks. Yeah. How did you... How did you manage all that time in being so low? And I'm curious, like, just even practically, like, how much time were you in the field versus, like, 
head into town to take a break and like from a very big picture before we dive into details of the hunt i'm just curious on like the logistics of that and spending that much time out there solo and from a big picture how you used that time yeah so most days i wasn't really waking up early like i guess classical elk hunting would dictate i would just kind of wake up around when the sun came up and just try to figure out what i wanted to do from there and uh, another thing i did have a co-worker and his brother they were out there for i guess a little bit over a week so it wasn't totally so low but mm. the beginning week and the end was so low okay yeah so that was nice to break it up hang out with my buddy yeah and then you you camped a lot at your truck right yes so it was really funny i anticipated basically backpacking and sleeping out of my tent but just as it happens i actually never slept out of a tent because the elk never gave me a reason to what do you mean by that elaborate so if i got into elk i was like cool i have camp on my back i can just kind of settle down and not hike extra miles but I only got into elk one day. So all those other days, I'm like, all right, I'm going to hike back to the truck and stay mobile and go somewhere else. So how how many, This was, I don't know if we said this yet, this was Colorado. Yes. Obviously with Colorado, you have, and if you have an over-the-counter tag, which I think you did, right? Sure did. Yeah. So you can hunt a variety of units by holding this one over-the-counter archery oak tag about how many units did you hunt uh so i think it was four four okay yeah i was trying to blow through them but yeah actually after i found success if i didn't find success that day i was going to go to a different unit did you stay in the same vicinity of the state or did you like go man i'm in the south west i'm gonna go north central or something crazy like that yeah it was about the same cluster of units they were kind of like in a pocket and the next unit was actually going to be i don't know i guess kind of significantly wester of where i was Mm. okay so three weeks and you said you got into elk one day yes and it was only one elk (laughs) So, I've never heard a bugle. You never heard a bugle the whole time? I never heard a single elk sound, and I saw one elk. <laughs> of those three weeks, how many days did you hunt? It was pretty much every day. I, okay. I think maybe one or two days we kind of got rained out. So I would just like go into town and get a shower and try to regain my sanity. But in some capacity, every one of the other days, I was hunting. Wow, okay. D- so we talk about you know being persistent staying patient not you know getting down when animal activity isn't fantastic whatever that's typically in the context of people hunting five seven ten days to be getting into three weeks of hunting almost every day not having an encounter not hearing a bugle how did you deal with that <laughs> mentally man it was a grind i don't know i was just really trying to stay positive and yeah. i guess ultimately it worked out because i don't think i ever got really too down 
but yeah, it was a grind. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive to not get down. I, you know, one thing with elk hunting and archery elk hunting in particular is you do, you learn from encounters, right? And I'm not saying you can't learn things if you don't have an encounter, but so often with archery elk, you, you know, it can take multiple encounters to actually get a shot or fill your tag. And there's just those times when it's like you have this encounter and maybe you realize your your setup was wrong or you moved at the wrong time or you were too aggressive or not aggressive enough or you cow called when you should abuse. Like there's all these things that you can like assess after an encounter and do like an after action report and look at, okay, I just had this encounter with elk. I did X, maybe I should have done Y, et cetera. And learning from those experiences and encounters that don't lead to killing an elk. I'm curious though, over multiple weeks of hunting, but not necessarily having encounters throughout that process, like what were you learning? I learned a lot of places that the elk aren't, but <laughs> were at some point. So it was kind of cool because all my e-scouting places, like I would find old sign and I'd be like, all right, well, I was kind of spot on with this, but they're not here now. It would be like, they probably left a week ago. So it was really interesting trying to just be a detective and be like, well, where did they go? Where are they now? Hmm. When you I say quite figured that out on most of these places. Yeah. <laughs> so you think sign that obviously wasn't fresh, but you don't think it was like months old. Do you think it was potentially a week or two weeks or something like that? Yeah. So I'm not really great at judging sign, but mm -hmm. from what I was able to gather, I was like, it seems like this sign is as old as say opening day. Okay. Once the pressure rolled in, they moved elsewhere. Mm. And you said you still feel like you don't have a clear answer into, you know, and of course you're bouncing around different units, different contexts. So there's no one answer to this period. But I guess if you think about it now and you go, okay, like here's a spot where I felt like I was on a week old sign or maybe elk moved semi recently because of hunting pressure what are some of the things you think you would look for to locate elk when there is hunting pressure, if that makes sense? Hmm. Honestly, it almost feels like finding a needle in a haystack because there's so much land out there. And you're like, yeah. did they move to private off of the border of the forest or are they just hiding in a, like a hell hole? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Some of these questions that I had, I never did get answers to. Because yeah. I just wasn't willing to put in the time and stay in a unit when I had like 40 something others to check out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is, we talk a lot, obviously, about staying mobile and finding elk and moving till you do find elk. But there is, there can be something to be said for not necessarily staying put, but like staying in a vicinity to go, okay, I know elk aren't here. I've checked that box, but are they here? Are they, over this ridge are they in this different basin have they dropped lower did they go to this pocket and you know maybe not vacating the country but just covering that country 
differently or more thoroughly or giving it a few days. Um, and I'm not saying it's the wrong answer to to pick up and move to a new spot. There's just different there's different ways to hunt country. There's different ways to hunt elk. And obviously, if you want to just be very active and cover country till you find vocal elk, for example, then you're more prone to being more mobile and less patient or like maybe not picking apart an area Um, because you're not necessarily looking at sign or trying to piece together the whole puzzle you're just trying to go find vocal elk for example Um, and i think you can have success both ways they're just very different strategies and approaches oh absolutely i was just trying to find my niche too yeah but yeah when i would check out an area like i wouldn't just like go in and do a loop and completely go somewhere else like i would like yeah the close vicinity i would do a loop here do a loop there check the other drainage or check Mm -hmm. another elevation but every time it pretty much was the same result what was your approach to calling maybe initially and then did that change over the course of these weeks or did it not change like maybe you just stuck to a certain like approach or strategy or idea in terms of calling while you're covering ground so if i was like hiking a ridge top or something i would do a locator down in and give it a little bit and then walk some more do it try it again i did a lot of cold calling setups so i believe they were pretty good setups like it was nice and thick and timbered where i was but I would probably do a 30 minute to 45 minute cold calling set. Nothing came in. I would hike a little bit more, try it again. And sometimes I would even just stomp around the woods, just looking for sign or visuals or hear something. And I would just cow call about every minute or so, just stomping, like breaking branches and stuff, trying to sound like a cow, just running around. So I know you said you didn't hear bugles, you didn't have like a, an encounter, but during the course of that, did you bump elk? Did you smell elk? Like any of that type of experience? None of the above. Like, I was pretty surprised. Like I was like, being out here this long, you would think I would have ran into one and blew it out of a area or something. Yeah, that's wild, man. So I think really what happened, like, I guess, long story short, the taxidermist told me it was a long, hard winter. And she was like, you should have bought a lottery ticket because there's just not a lot of elk to be seen. Like, for example, one of the ranches out by the taxidermist, the guy found like a thousand dead elk on his property. Whoa. So I didn't realize I knew they had a, a hard winter, but I didn't realize how grave it was. Wow. So I'm thinking that probably had a lot to do with it. Yeah, I just, I I don't know. Yeah, I didn't archery elk hunt this year. I knew that I wasn't archery elk hunting this year, so I didn't look at different uh, things as closely as I normally do. And I've heard things about the winter, but in terms of their impact or how it affected certain areas, uh, I just am not as up to date on this year as I am on a typical year. So that's pretty wild. Yeah, and it, it seems that the, I guess the area that I was in got hit especially hard, mm-hmm. northern Colorado. And apparently it bled into other states too, like Utah and Wyoming. 
parts of that, they got hit pretty hard too. Yeah. So the more you know. Wish yeah. I knew that going into it. <laughs> <laughs> what was your experience encountering other hunters or your perception of hunting pressure? And I guess, you know, tied to that is what patterns did you see or did you see it change much? Did you notice more on the weekends? Did it matter? Was there, you know, you covered units, was certain units or certain types of country more pressured than others? I mean, there's a lot there that we could talk about, but I guess I just want to hear your experience on encountering other hunters and your perception of hunting pressure. I only saw a few other hunters in the woods, like while I was actively hunting, which I was really surprised by, but I would see a lot of cars parked. I talked to a lot of people and especially on weekends and especially during muzzy season, there was just people all over the place. But even during that, I only saw a few people just actually while I was hunting. And I guess as you run into hunters, you're hearing them talk about their experience being similar to yours of, man, we can't seem to turn up an elk, not hear an elk, et cetera. Or did you talk to anyone who did hear bugles and whatnot? So I talked to dozens of people during that entire time and a vast majority, probably 95% of them are like, yeah, we haven't seen anything. We haven't seen sign. We haven't heard anything. And then there was a couple of people that saw elk and those same couple of people did kill elk too. I think it was probably three people that I talked to that had found and killed elk. Hmm. Was that, were those three people in a similar area or unit? Like, was there a quote unquote good spot or were those three separate encounters in three separate areas, you know, in different units? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was three separate units. Okay. Hmm. Man. You, uh, I'm just curious, like I to go back to it. So you essentially spent the first week by yourself. It sounds like, and was that the very first like opening week of season? So I think I got to Colorado on the fifth hunted. Oh, okay. Because one of my buddies decided to get married on like September 4th or something. (laughs) Oh man, I'm going to miss the opener. But doesn't seem like I missed much with the opener, to be honest. Yeah, that's what I, I was thinking through a timeline of like, okay, you get out there, it's early in the season, and sometimes it's, you know, it can be quieter, earlier, warmer, what have you. So it in my head, just thinking through this big picture of several weeks, it's like, all right, you got the first week, you don't get into anything, but it's easy to chalk that off to, oh, they're not fired up yet, or it was too warm or whatever. And then you, you know, rough timeline, you have this second week where buddies come in. So then you spend a week with them and you didn't have encounters or success, but at least you had the camaraderie and like support and encouragement of being with someone versus it being another week solo with no action. And then they leave and then it's like, all right, well now here I am again, it's the third week, but I can stick this out and do it. So I think just uh, like a logical to me mindset of like, all right, first week is easier to justify. It's early, they're not fired up yet. Second year, you're probably kind of like encouraged, rejuvenated by having some company. And then the third week, you're probably somewhat thinking like, all right, they're going to get fired up. Like, you know, I just got to stick with this. Uh, does that translate? Did that kind of 
Was that at all going through your mind, that type of thought? Yeah, that was very true. Everything you said there. But yeah, I'm every day, every day closer to the second half of September. I'm like, they got to start talking. <laughs> right. Like, I don't think they can control whether they start talking or not if it's rutting elk. Yeah. Crazy. Did you go into any spots that were just a total wasteland, like no sign, no nothing, and then... Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Only one. It was a wilderness area. Mm. So that probably had a lot to do with it. Really Mm -hmm. beautiful country. I loved it out there, but just did a loop through there, and there was a lot of deadfall, too. I don't think I'll particularly want to live in that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was a cool area, just didn't stir up any sign. And then would you say that a lot of the other, I, I guess what I'm getting at, did you see a lot of variety in like certain pockets like this one where it was a wasteland versus others that had a ton of sign? Or was it kind of a lot of very similar, like call it mediocre, like, hey, there's some sign in here, there's some potential, but it's all older? Or did you, I guess, just see a lot of variety and kind of know like, this was either really good, but just not right now, or this was really bad and a little bit in between, or was it a lot of like similar type impression? Because you just covered so much ground in so many days. I'm just curious, like some of your takeaways on that type of thing. A lot of the places that I found sign, it was really good sign. Like I was like, there was a good amount of elk here. They're just not here anymore. Yeah. That was most of them. Some of them, you'd be like, oh, yeah, they might have had an elk pass through or something. But a lot of it was like, no, they were living here at one point. I still, man, I don't, that is wild to me to spend that many days in cover country and just not, not find fresh sign, not hear a bugle, not bump something. Like, that is just wild. I've certainly had multiple days of elk hunting like that but i can't imagine having three weeks like that yeah i was like i guess i'm just gonna chalk this up to colorado but looking back i don't know what i chalk it up to yeah yeah it was wild still all right well let's let's slow down i know we've bounced all over i just had so many questions on it's such a unique experience i think that you had like this opportunity to be new to spend so much time, et cetera, et cetera. But let's go ahead and dive into, I want to say the day that you were successful, but also if there was anything kind of leading up to that and the days prior, like I want to begin to pick apart the actual, what became your successful hunting story and kind of slow down and yeah, just hear how that came together and what, what you hope, what you think contributed to it and different things like that. So pick up the story wherever you think it makes the most sense for that. Okay, so the day before I found success, we did a basically just hike the ridge top because at the bottom of this little drainage, like right off the side of the highway, we found some actually found some fresh sign. We're like, all right, these elk got to be coming down here to feed probably at night. So we're like, all right, we'll try to find where they're bedding during the day. And we did a big loop and, uh, I was pretty banged up after the after that day. We didn't end up finding much of anything, but so I was banged up. And then the next day, I start my hunt. I hunted 
alone. That was the first day I hunted alone from my buddies. They went home, but so I was like, all right, I'm going to try the opposite side back in basically an area that I already hunted a few days, but I'm like, I just want to try something different. And I haven't been on this ridge yet. So I hike up and I spent most of the day pretty much at a pretty high altitude. And I didn't find much sign really at all. So as it getting closer to the evening, I start hiking back down the ridge towards the truck. And I still had the thermal coming up. So I'm like, ah, yeah, I'll still do some cow calls every once in a while while I'm hiking around getting back to the truck and I stop cow called and then I was gonna I pulled my phone out I was gonna look at the map just to make sure I was going the right spot and I look up and there's a bull 30 yards away from me it was the most sudden thing I've ever experienced it just completely out of nowhere it's like oh my I'm into elk yeah and so I guess all my whitetail experience kicked in and I just froze because he was looking right at me. And I probably had a staring match with him for probably five minutes, but it sure felt like 10 at the time. And I couldn't move. I had my bow in my off hand, my phone in my bow hand. I had no arrow knocked. I didn't have my release clicked on. I'm like, all right, a lot has to go right right now for me to actually get this opportunity off. So he ends up starting to move side hill, like right below me. And he walks through a patch of trees. It was like really thin pines. So there wasn't much of any sizable trees around. But I was able to switch my bow around, put my phone away, knock an arrow, get my release on. And I'm looking, I'm like, there's only one shooting lane, like exactly one shooting lane in this whole area that I can see. And he just meanders right into it. But I had time to range in that opening. And I ranged 30 yards. So this bull actually gets into my shooting lane. (laughs) I planned on giving him a nervous grunt, which I practiced probably thousands of times. Like I know I had it in the bag to get him to stop. But I guess my mouth and the reed went dry like during all this excitement (laughs) and I try to do the nervous grunt and the most horrible twisted whistle comes out of this reed. It was absolutely horrible and worst case scenario, but ultimately it got him to stop and I was already at full draw at that point. So as my shot broke, one of the last things I remember is like, Hmm, this elk looks smaller than 30 yards and as i watched that arrow go down i I was like oh no i just missed thought i missed below him so he kind of bounds off 20 yards or so and i'm like all right maybe i can call him back in with get work on his curiosity or something so i cow called a couple times and i think i took a step to basically peer over a little bit and then he bounds off out of sight down the ridge so i'm like oh Well, that sucks. So a few minutes later, I walk over. Oh, so I actually saw my arrow stuck in a piece of deadfall, which was incredibly convenient because I didn't think I'd ever see that arrow again. When I get to the arrow, I'm like, oh, 
there's blood on it. This is either really good or really bad, but I have a bad feeling about it. So let's investigate further. But yeah, the arrow was, I'm not going to say covered in blood, but there was decent blood on it, which is really a good thing because I don't think I would have looked that hard if I didn't find the arrow because I was so unbelievably certain that I had missed. So after that, yeah, I kind of hiked back up the ridge, did a big loop around to not disturb the area and hiked back to the truck because I wasn't very confident in the shot. So I'm like, this guy's going to sit overnight and I'll find him in the morning. So how late was it at that point? It was probably 20 minutes before dark-ish. Okay. I think yeah. it was about dark when I got to the truck. Yeah. And when you, so before you found the arrow, you saw him bound off kind of after you, you know, he shuffled a bit after the shot and then you saw him bound off a second time, right? Yeah. And at that point in time, you didn't see him like looking hurt, looking wobbly, any blood on him, et cetera. So like up until the point you found your arrow, you thought it was a clean miss. I was so unbelievably certain. But yeah so thick in there i couldn't really see him i just saw a blurry figure of an elk running through the thickness of this pine stuff yeah how what did you based on your experience hunting whitetail what did you make of the blood on the arrow like did you read much into it did you look at oh it's lighter darker it's bubbly it's you know you mentioned it you said it wasn't fully covered in blood, but had pretty good blood. Like, I guess I'm just kind of curious where your mindset was on how good that blood was, or maybe what type of shot or impact you maybe thought you had, and like what your thought was on how recoverable this elk may be, or how far he thought he may go, or did you have any indication of any of that based on the arrow? So the arrow had no bubbles on it, so I was like, well, that's already looking grim. Um, it was kind of dark blood, so I was like, it looks like liver blood, but I don't, the way I saw the arrow, it looked like it was right in line with the crease. So I'm like, I hope it's not a brisket shot, because that just wouldn't be good. I'm like, but I honestly have no idea, because I didn't see the impact like I thought I did. So I was like, hopefully it's in the chest cavity. But I, I wasn't real confident on it. And I guess this would be a great time to talk about lighted knock because this was the first archery shot on an animal in probably over a decade that I didn't have a lighted knock. So it was kind of funny because normally I would be, you know, I don't know if you ever use them or not, but you're like, oh, I saw the shot. I saw the shot crystal clear because it's a lighted knock. And you just, you know, you have a good <clears throat> idea of what happened. That wasn't the case with this one. So I don't know if I'm going to go back to them or not, but that would have been pretty cool for data in this case in particular. Yeah. I think they're legal in Colorado now. Do you know for sure? Yeah, the Colorado is good. I think Idaho, you still can't. And I'm not sure about the other Western states, but I'm okay. pretty sure I remember looking into it and being like, well, I could if I want to. So did you not have them because you were trying to 
build a different type of arrow setup for elk versus what you shot with whitetail? What was the reason that you didn't have a lighted knock then? Yeah, I just wanted to get some better arrow flight at distance. Whether it would give it to me or not, I'm not sure, but I was like, I'm not taking any chances with this. Yeah. Did you change a lot about your arrow setup for elk? Like, did you go heavier in general, higher FOC, or did you just change? Like, was knock a minor change, or you kind of evaluated everything and changed other components of your arrow setup? Yeah, so I actually built a new arrow for this hunt, which I'm I'm just going to use for everything going forward. But I wanted a, uh, not a micro, I think it was a five millimeter arrow, which is a good deal thinner than what I've been running for the past ever, which is crazy. I, I have so much more penetration, like even on targets, those yeah. thinner arrows are just really awesome. So we'll get into where I hit the elk, but I actually did get a pass through. Like it was embedded in that piece of deadfall pretty good, which made me kind of happy because I'm only shooting 65 pounds. So I'm like, that's pretty impressive. So you have light fading, decide to leave the elk. All you really have is your impression from the blood on the arrow. <laughs> You're three weeks deep into this thing. That had to have been... I had been a long night <laughs> to try and go back and just oh. think through everything. And man, yeah, that being so low, like you can't process it with someone. And that had been a pretty, a pretty long night. Oh, it was brutal. So when I got back to the truck, I actually called my folks because my dad has a lot of whitetail experience and he killed a cow elk in the past. So we just kind of talked about it. He seemed pretty optimistic. And then after I got off the phone, I actually looked up an outfitter in the area and I gave him a call because I just wanted a second opinion with from someone that has a lot of like elk experience. And this guy, he wasn't really able to give me much because he's like, I wasn't there. I don't know the whole situation, but he just gave me some pointers on how to track an elk that you don't have a solid idea of the shot. So I was really appreciative because I basically called him in like a panic. I'm like, I just need to talk to someone that knows what they're doing. What was some of the advice he gave you on tracking? He was like, yeah, you can grid if you have to. I mean, I already knew that from Whitetail, but he was like, check the creek. Uh, just pointers like that. I guess things I might not have been thinking of clearly at the time, which actually was very helpful. Because I did check the Cree. Oh, yeah. We'll get into all that. <laughs> did you, was it just a, I'm sure a somewhat restless night and then an early start? Or did you take your time the next morning? What was your approach back to getting in there? I might have slept a, maybe a couple, a few hours. Definitely not a good night's sleep. <laughs> I was parked. I really wanted this parking spot in particular because someone had built some type of like a meat platform so i saw it and i'm like oh i'm claiming this spot but at the expense of that i was like parked on a slope <laughs> so while i was trying to sleep i kept sliding down in the back of the car which was a nightmare not that i probably would have slept well anyway but it wasn't a good recipe for sleep and then i woke up at first light i think i ate something quick 
I didn't even make coffee that morning. That was the first. Then I just ran up to where I was and got on the search. About how far from the truck was this? So it was like, I think 800 yards as the crow flies, but you know, that's never how it works in the mountains. Yeah. I think it was about a half mile each way. Okay. So your, your plans to go back to the shot slash, you know, arrow location and just try to find blood and like, that's the first, first plan. Yeah, exactly. To which I did. So I was able to see where all four of his hooves dug in, like right when the shot broke. And then I followed his prints for maybe 10 yards. And then I found a little bit of blood. It was like a little drop on a leaf. And then I ended up tracking it to where he was when I bumped him. And I was like, oh, okay. There's a small pool of blood on both sides of his body. So I was like, okay, that's looking promising. And then I found another one similar to that, another 10 yards back. And I was like, okay, this is where I bumped him and he ran down and out of sight. So I did grid searching after I couldn't find, I couldn't find tracks going down. I couldn't find blood going down. I tore that whole place apart below where I saw him go looking for him. And I didn't find anything. But then I walked up a creek, which was maybe a couple hundred yards to the right. And I didn't find anything there. But what I did find was tracks, which were his tracks leading him to where I shot him at, which was mm. neat. So I was like, all right, he is going completely side hill. So then I went back up the first blood, just in a frustration. And I called my dad again. Somehow I had service throughout this whole day, which was amazing to me. But I talked to him for a little while. He he got me pretty optimistic. He's like, yeah, just keep checking places out. And I'm like, all right, well, what I'm going to do is I just tore apart below where I shot. Now I'm going to move over some and basically do the same. Mm -hmm. I'll hang up the phone and then I walk. Maybe, I, it was like 40 or 50 yards. I walk over and then I just turn my head and down. It was like a dried up creek drainage. And he was just laying right in it, dead. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I just spent five hours looking. And this elk was 85 yards away the whole time. That whole time you were kind of gritting below, it was like five hours? Yeah, it was like Dang. first light to whatever, whatever's after that. It was like afternoon. Wow. Brutal. <laughs> it was unbelievable. So... As soon as I saw him, I just got right back on the horn and called my dad. And it was a really cool experience to walk up to my first bull on the phone with my dad. Oh, it man. was crazy emotional, man. I didn't think I would get that emotional. Yeah, I can only imagine it being emotional. I mean, the the weeks you spent, the effort, and then you know the tracking the questionable shot like there's so much pent up into is this ever going to happen and then when you finally lay eyes on them yeah there's a there's a big release of all that i'm sure oh absolutely it was that 24 hour period was just an absolute roller coaster 
Dang, man. That's so, so cool. You were able to have service, call your dad and almost like have him be part of that in a way. Right. It was awesome. I, I never would have thought because a lot of these other places, there was no service at all. It's like, yeah, I guess I'll send you an interview message, but a phone call, that's just awesome. Yeah. Realistically, going into this trip, your first time ever, like I'm talking the months before, you know, years, months, days before this trip, like realistically, what did you think your chances were slash what were your expectations beforehand? So I did not think I would be coming home with meat nor antlers. I was like, if I can get in the elk a couple times, get some experience, that would make me very happy. If I could hear some bugles, just have cool experience like that, like kind of experience the rut and learn a lot along the way, I'd be like, that is total success in my book. But I got almost none of those other things, but I came home with meat and antlers. Which yeah, right. <laughs> you got what you didn't think you were going to get, and you didn't get what you thought was more likely to get. Yeah. Wild. That is wild. <laughs> well, man. That... Uh, I want to touch back on something else before I forget. Absolutely. So if that was a more mature bull or a mature cow, I don't think I ever would have been able to get away with what I got away with. Cause mm. like I said, I cow called r like literally seconds before I saw him. So if he had like more experience, he would have looked, I mean, he looked through me, but if he was more experienced, he would have been like, there's no elk standing where I just heard an elk. Mm -hmm. So I guess I got super lucky with having it be a younger bull yeah i just found that pretty interesting yeah i mean it's um yeah it takes nothing away from all the effort you put into it to go yeah i just kind of got lucky with a young bull because uh, you worked <laughs> your tail off um and did a lot of things right and stayed patient in that moment and was able to make the most of an opportunity that as you said before like you said it when when you saw him and you're standing there essentially with your pants down <laughs> with your phone in your hand, your bow in the wrong hand, everything else. Like it's a, it's a low odds proposition that you're going to get a shot from that. And you did. And, and yeah, part of that may be a younger bull, but you still had to do a lot right to make that happen. Oh yeah. Like I always say that archery hunting, everything has to happen perfectly. This situation for it to unfold everything had to happen absolutely perfectly and i still just can't believe it did like what he easily could have just walked a different direction mm -hmm. but on his own without me doing anything he just walked right where i needed him to yeah amazing it is amazing what so upon recovering him and again feel free to to elaborate more if you want on what you're feeling thinking etc i'm not trying to skip over that i also just don't want to like <laughs> make you try and relive every emotion or what have you but one question i do have is you know we talked about the shot we talked about the blood etc now that you obviously get to recover the elk what what was shot placement what did that look like so it was low just like i thought it was but mm -hmm. it was also 
I want to call it maybe six inches back. So I think I hit liver. I think I hit the bottom of his liver, mm. which I'm very glad that I let him sit overnight because that would have been a nightmare if I started tracking him right then and there. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. His lungs and heart were fully intact. So I'm thinking it was liver. I know it was, uh, as you said, it was like a younger bull, but still when you're even a young bull, when you're used to whitetail seem quite big. <laughs> so what was it like just to look at the chore of, okay, great. I killed an elk, but now I'm so low. This is my first one, et cetera. Were you prepared for that or were you feeling kind of overwhelmed by it? I was actually looking forward to it because actually at your advice from the podcast, every deer that me and my dad killed last year, I ended up doing the gutless method on. So I was pretty well versed in what I needed nice. to do just on a very larger scale. Yeah, it's so helpful, man. I was same, like so glad that I started doing that before, you know, I was just whitetail hunting and hadn't hunted elk yet to, to begin to understand that process. And I won't do it any other way anymore. It's like, why would I allow the possibility for a mess when I can yeah. completely avoid it? Yeah. So yeah, that's a very good idea, man. And I think a lot of people should probably try that. Yeah. So he was in, you said he was in a, it was essentially like a dry creek bed? Yeah. Okay. So I guess that's why I wasn't able to see him because it was, it dipped down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you have enough room to work on him fairly well in that spot? Yeah, it was uh pretty good. And Ideally, there was even a uh, like a little pine tree that was right behind his hind quarters, so I was able to like prop the legs up on it without using rope or anything. Perfect. So that was super handy. But at the same token, another one of those little trees was blocking the entrance to like where the tenderloins are. So that mm. was a very fun time getting it out. <laughs> How long do you think it took you to? go from recovering them and making the first cut to all right pretty much have this thing taken care of and i'm ready to start packing meat i'm asking like in part for people who are you know maybe new to this idea of elk hunting or solo like what type of time did that take you i think it took me it was over four hours to get him ready to get back to the truck it might have okay. been even five i'm not sure but I actually got it on GoPro. So I strapped my GoPro to a tree and threw on a time lapse. And I'm so grateful I did now because it's really cool to look back on. Oh, that is cool, man. It's very I was cool. like, all right, I knew it was worth lugging this thing around for three weeks. <laughs> yeah. Just for this situation. <laughs> yeah, that's all the elk footage you have from three weeks, right? <laughs> exactly. That's it. The battery died uh, halfway through right after I... I was right at the point of rolling him over and I really wanted to see myself struggle doing that alone. But yeah. The battery so since you got right. the first half. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Any, as you said, you've, you did the practice beforehand and doing whitetails gutless, but any other takeaways or things you learned on the elk or it was just, as you said before, it was just like, okay, I've done this before. This is just a bigger version of it. I honestly think it's easier on an elk because especially like separating bones at joints, like there's just so much more room. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's harder on whitetails because you it's such a small space you have to hit. Mm-hmm. So that surprised me because I thought it was going to be much more challenging compared to like a whitetail. Yeah, I didn't really find a good way to flip it over. That was the hardest part in yeah. that whole process. The, like, as you said before, this wasn't, you know, miles and miles and miles away from the truck, but it's still a, a solo elk pack out. How how did that go? What was your, physically, how were you? Mentally, what was that like? I mean, uh, it's just a lot of work, no matter kind of how how much the distance is. Like, just packing one period is a lot of work solo. Yeah, I was very fortunate that it wasn't, like, a really horrible pack out. It was actually looking at it, going into it. I was like, this shouldn't be too bad. Like, I was like, I should be able to finish this today, which I was able to. But yeah, I was just fortunate. Uh, The training program you guys offer was very helpful. I meant to say something about that earlier in the podcast, but that was very, very helpful. And I'll be doing it again next year. Yeah, it's such a it's such a unique story i mean very few guys get that amount of time very few guys have that type of experience including the down like if you are going to have that much time and have that you know lack of encounter lack of vocalization but man just you sticking it out and the way that it happened right place at the right time but that only happens by your persistence so um yeah it's just it's such a unique i don't know that i've heard a story quite like it to be honest with you i thought it was very unique too because i listened to a lot of elk stuff do a lot of elk research (laughs) i don't think i've ever heard one like this this is different the listeners obviously haven't seen it but you know when you first emailed me you had some photos and stuff and again you're solo so like your pictures are you setting up a camera and whatnot obviously but man just the there's there's certain photos where you know you can see someone's happy and whatever but for whatever reason like as soon as i saw your photos like you smiling with that bowl that i mean you can just see it in your face like this isn't just like me happy because i killed something this is like there's a lot that went into this and it's just like pure like joy you know behind it it's just super neat i was over the moon smiles ear to ear (laughs) yeah Heck yeah. So you said it was a long afternoon, but you did get that pack out wrapped up? I did. I think I wrapped up at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. The first thing I wanted to do was get it off the ridge because maybe 500, no, a few hundred yards below where I found him, there was like a motorcycle trail. So I was like, all right, cool. If I can get him down to that motorcycle trail, then I don't mind doing this after dark because dark did come pretty quick. Mm-hmm. But I was like, as long as I'm not tumbling down this ridge after dark, I think I'll be fine. Yeah, no, that's a that was a great move for sure. Yeah, so I shuttled all the meat there down to the trail. And then I just took one load after another. Nice man. That oh man, that K four pack is a dream with weight. They good. It's a dream. So nice. I had K three before that and. Uh-huh. I just have a really small waist. So when K4 comes out, I'm like, oh, I think that'll fit me better because you have a, sm- <laughs> a size yeah. small like hip belt. And yeah, it, it performs, man. 
very, very impressed. Good, good. What was your, so you, you know, you're back at the truck that night, you're in Colorado, you're days travel from home. So I'm just curious, like very practically, what did you do with meat, you know, both quote unquote immediately, like the next morning or what have you, but then also in terms of getting it home, what did that process look like for you? So the first night I knew it was going to get cold. It was actually 27 degrees when I woke up. So I let the meat sit on that like meat shelf thing that some person built who knows when. So the meat was very cold. And another thing I did, I cut down to the femur bone. I really wanted that meat to cool. And it did. It was cold to the touch the next morning. And then I put, actually, I put half in a Yeti 105 and the other half in another of the same. So it fit very well. And then I ran into town and got some dry ice. And I kept it on dry ice for... I guess almost a week. And then when I was driving home, I stopped by my cousin's house and hung out with her for a little bit and threw the meat in her. They have like like really big freezers. So I got a good freeze on it. And then I didn't use any more dry ice after that. I just threw them back in the coolers and drove it home. What and it was said- almost thawed enough to start working on right when I got home. So it really did work out well. Yeah. You said... uh it was on dry ice for almost a week, and then you were kind of headed home. Did you stay out there to keep hunting, or what was that week? Uh, so I kind of recovered. I got a hotel room the next day, and then, so actually, I was looking for somewhere to get a euro done, and everywhere I called was like, "Oh yeah, it'll be like six to eight weeks, and then you're gonna pay like four hundred dollars getting it shipped." So I'm like, "Okay, this is a nightmare." So I actually called that outfitter again. And I'm like, hey, do you know anyone that has like a quick turnaround on Euros? And he sent me north a couple hours. And when I, I brought it in and they're like, oh, yeah, we can get it done by tomorrow morning. Seriously? Like, what? what do you mean? Why, why does no one know about this service? I've never heard of such a service like that. Huh. What was that place? If you don't mind sharing. Uh, I think it was called Go West Taxidermy. Okay. I think her name was Ashley, and she was awesome. Yeah, I I highly recommend that place if anyone's packing something home from Colorado. Nice. What takeaways do you have on, again, I know we kind of started with things like lessons learned, but anything that comes to mind we didn't hit, and then I just love to touch on, it's always good to touch on gear, things that either did or didn't work great, anything you just didn't mention yet on, again, either just lesson learns or takeaways on gear, et cetera. I kind of forgot. I wanted to open with this, but I forgot. So 10 days out from this hunt, I took my bow to the bow shop because my peep rotated and I bring it home and I draw my bow back. As soon as I hit the back wall, the bow exploded. My control cable snapped. So I'm looking down at my bow that bounced out of my hand with a broadhead sitting at my feet. And I'm like, oh boy, this is going to make things really interesting. And it did. So I bring it back <laughs> to the bow shop and my bow shop's awesome. Like they looked at it. They're like, yeah, looks like the cable was routed incorrectly. So they actually replaced the cams. They replaced the string just cause they're awesome. 
And then I was like, okay, now I have to shoot my butt off for the next week trying to break this string in while simultaneously tuning so I don't have my peep rotate while I'm out there, something crazy like that. So it was a very unique way to start a trip. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's wild. And that was from, it was just routed incorrectly? Yeah, I'm not so sure exactly what that means, but they seemed to. So I was like, all right, as long as I leave this place with a bow that I can start breaking in. Yeah. Dang. Yeah, that's wild. It was unbelievable. I was like, this would only happen to me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, hopefully that was the extent of all your quote unquote, like, gear failures but was there anything else good or bad i guess from the trip takeaways gear wise i mean it's just a lot of time to you know a lot of guys go oh yeah i'm gonna go my first elk hunt and they you know get five seven days in the field and uh you had plenty more time than that yeah so i didn't end up breaking a hilleberg or anything (laughs) but (laughs) all my stuff really worked well like i'm looking at my list here and i don't I didn't have anything really fail and I don't count the bow as failing. That was just an interesting situation. But as far as stuff that did really good, obviously K4 blown away by it. Uh, I really, really liked the Sitka mountain Evo jacket. I I had one for most of the trip. It just worked out extremely well. Big, big fan of that. Uh, the Argali knife, that thing I didn't have to touch up, which was awesome. It just mm-hmm. plowed through that entire elk. It's really cool to have just some good steel. Because yeah. when I was younger, I always used like cheaper quality steels, and they would just get really dulled up fast. So that's a very valuable piece yeah. to me. Yeah, it's a great knife. Uh. Trekking poles are a move that is just a game changer for packing out an animal. I think Mm -hmm. I only used them maybe twice before that, but in those cases where they're particularly useful, that's just, they're worth their weight in gold. Yeah. Like getting down deadfall and stuff like that. Strap the bow to the pack and get the poles out because I'm not breaking my ankles today. (laughs) I think as far as gear goes, I think that's about it amazingly nothing i didn't break anything well man thanks for taking the time to share the story as i said uh when i got the email from you i like you shared some things and then there's other things where i'm like wait what like he was out there all month and you know he sounds like he didn't have much action in three weeks like i just knew i had to hear more and personally wanted to hear more but also i this is a great story to share with listeners and you know just another perfect example of persistence and it's not always going to work out like you know when you're persistent but you also just can't you just got to hunt till the end if you have a week to hunt if you have three weeks to hunt if you have three days to hunt you just got to make the most of what you have and stay persistent and you never know what can happen and your story is a a perfect example of that absolutely man you can't kill them from home you just have to be out there yeah i have a question for you before we go So every time I end up like quartering an animal, I always get hair all over the meat. 
Mm -hmm. Am I doing something wrong or is there a good technique to minimize that? Because it just hair just gets everywhere. Like mm -hmm. I'm like, how do I got hair from the elk's mane on a hind quarter? It's just like this doesn't even make sense. Yeah. I do think it's tougher when you're solo just because you have like less hands. Um you know, there's there's several things to that. It could be partially be cutting like cutting with the grain of the hair, the way the hair is laying um is going to help keep hair from like popping up so if you're cutting you know if you're pushing the hair up and making it want to stand up as you cut it's also going to pop more hair off um so just following the path of the hair if you will and the way that the hair is laying and cutting it in that direction is helpful and then um i try to you know, I try to get as much hide off as possible and like lay it back and far out away from the meat. So instead of saying just like, okay, I'm going to work on just the front shoulder, or I'm going to start with just the back straps or whatever. Um, instead of just working in that area, I'm going to try to, and this, you know, depends on how the animal's laying and if I have help, et cetera, but I'm going to try to like skin that whole side or as much of that side as I can first and get it laid back and out of the way and then you know kind of start to take off meat um so that can be helpful too and then there's just there are times where it's like tricky especially solo where you're you need to move something a certain way and maybe that causes it to lay on hair of a different part or what have you so just obviously trying to minimize that contact but i think a lot of it comes to the direction you're cutting at times and then also um, just trying to give yourself as much clearance for lack of better terms, like skin away as much hide as you can and then start working on meat. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I try that out on some white tails here soon. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's times where, you know, hair gets on stuff and I've definitely had, I feel like I've had animals that for whatever reason tend to, you know, more hairs coming off than others. Um, so I, I think there could be multiple factors. That's a good question, though. I like keeping the meat clean. Yeah, yeah. I've and been butchering this thing at home the past three days, and the first step is always just, all right, bring it to the sink and try to rinse off all this hair. Yeah. And two, I think with you, like, it depends what you do with it, obviously, afterwards. But um, did you keep it in game bags when you had it in the cooler? I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've, Cause I was definitely have had times where I've taken meat out of game bags, but then it's been on ice and things like that. And then you start to get a little bit of melt and then hair's floating around and hair's, you know, getting on areas because it, you know, is, is free at that point and, and has contact versus not being in a game bag. But yeah, I really that's did a good question. That. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping it in the game bags was the, the right call. Yeah. Good. Well, thanks for sharing, man. I bet you're, uh, I bet you're hooked and excited to still get out and get those experiences you didn't get, like get the bugles and get the encounters and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. I'll most definitely be out next year. I just don't know where yet. <laughs> well, there you have it, guys. A unique story for sure. Quite a memorable one for Graydon. I so admire his persistence and dedication to sticking it out during what obviously was a very tough hunt at times. It takes a lot to stick through 
hunting, when things aren't going your way, when animals seem to be completely elusive. So kudos to him, and I hope that, if nothing else, it inspires you to stay more persistent on your future hunts when things seemingly aren't coming together. As always, if you're enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you can leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app that you're using. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the show, be sure to hit subscribe or follow in the podcast app or go to exomotgear.com forward slash podcast to learn more. And finally, you can always contact us with any questions, suggestions, or any other feedback you have by sending an email to podcast at exomotgear.com. We'll talk to you soon.